So when you actually go back to the genesis of most businesses is the idea of having a specific purpose, which can be different for you and I. And actually profit being the fuel that allows you to reach your destination, which is purpose. So those ideas are actually interconnected. And in some sense, if you get the balance off, you can potentially destroy both of them. This is Exploring Leaders, episode 28, with Professor, board member and advisor George Serafine. George will share his story and his insights into the area of balancing corporate purpose with profit, inspiring you to take responsible leadership in the digital age. Do you wonder how trailblazing leaders sense at scale, involve to innovate, and align the actions in this increasingly digital world? Welcome to the Exploring Leaders podcast. The experienced team at Degosian interviews leaders from around the world for insights and inspiration on how to lead in the digital age. In this episode, Degosian founder Lizalette Engstam, who is also an independent board chair and director, researcher, author, and advisor, asks the questions. Our guest today is George Serafine. George Serafine is professor at Harvard, where he co-leads the Impact Weighted Accounts Project and the Climate and Sustainability Impact AI Lab. He's teaching the course Risks, Opportunities and Investments in an Era of Climate Change. He just released a book named Purpose and Profit, How Business Can Lift Up the World, exploring the challenges and opportunities in building and sustaining profitable purpose-driven organizations that has measurable positive impact on society. He's a member of several boards, including both listed and Fortune 100 companies, and he's an academic partner at State Street Associates. George is passionate about exploring and guiding leaders and companies in building companies that positively impact all stakeholders. This episode focuses on his journey and perspectives he finds useful for the top companies, leaders and boards. Warm welcome, George. We are here at your Harvard office and I'm so glad that we finally get to meet and I've read your book and we're going to be talking about that. You are a professor here at Harvard, but you're also a board member. Yes. Uh, and you're also advice investors. Yes. So you are one of the people that I'm interviewing that has most of the stakeholder roles that is really interesting. So warm welcome to this podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure both to meet and also to have this conversation. And it's, it's so exciting to have read your book that has just come out that we're going to talk about. But before that, I want our listeners and viewers to get to know a bit more about you. So what has taken you to where you are today? Sure. I grew up in Athens, Greece, which is a wonderful place. It's an amazing city. And um, I went there, of course, for school and growing up for college. And then I moved to London after that. I moved to London there to pursue some studies in terms of accounting and finance. And my background was in finance, my undergrad degree as well. And I worked there 
I work there around insurance uh, valuation and insurance related investment decisions and so forth. I was always passionate about research. So I wanted to do a PhD. As a result, I traveled, I crossed the Atlantic. I got my PhD at Harvard University. And for the past 16 years now, I have been at Harvard Business School, teaching here, doing research and enjoying all months of the year other than the very cold winter. <laughs> Which is really nice. So I wanted to first just go back to your background from Greece, which is really a background from a lot of the thinkers and philosophers. Do you think that has impacted you in some ways and why you are so curious about how things fit together? For sure. And I think a really significant thread that you find in Greek philosophy is the emphasis on certain values and how those values then tend to affect a lot of the conceptual thinking that is happening about how you structure a society, mm. how you structure organizations, how you structure transactions and so forth. So for me, that thinking has really allowed me to concentrate my work but also you can say my philosophy around certain values. Mm. And for me, those are transparency first. And many people ask me, why do you place so much importance in transparency? And I say, because transparency is a necessary condition in order to get accountability. Mm. And accountability is an extremely important value and function in a, inside the society because without it, you cannot have meritocracy. Mm. So I go from the idea of meritocracy, which I consider it to be one of the best attributes that you can develop within a society, mm. within an organization and so forth. The basic idea that the best person will be rewarded to do a job, a function, a certain task within a society. But that is fundamentally enabled by having accountability, which is enabled by having a transparency. And I think that value mm. chain, that link, actually is the ingredient for building well-functioning societies, but also well-functioning organizations. So also when we start discussing from a board perspective, from a governance perspective and so forth, mm. I consider those things extremely important. Why for me, they have been something that I reflect back from my growing up in Greece because I have also seen how detrimental it can be not having those values. Yeah. Growing up within actually a structure that might not have the transparency, that might not have right. the accountability, that might not have the meritocracy. And I think it's so interesting because you mention <clears throat> the values very much as a base, whilst all of us now when we are concerned about sustainability and companies and societies and their collaboration, everybody understands that it's complex and everybody talks about systems thinking, but they're actually not that quickly as you are linking it back to values and yes. looking at the values in the structure. Yes. And some of that is, I would say, dynamic in mm. nature, right? So something that is happening, for example, and I describe in the book as well, is that the levels of transparency that we're observing today were not the levels of transparency that you would observe 
20 years, 30 years ago within global value chains, within organizations and so forth. And what has enabled that has been fundamentally technology. So technology has changed completely the level of transparency that we have, both because of this, mobile phone, yeah. right? but also because then of social media. So yeah. now we have a much, I would say, higher level of visibility mm -hmm. when it comes to the impacts that organizations have inside the workforce from their products and services in terms of safety and so forth. And that has completely changed the way that then we think about risk management, about opportunity, about product right. innovation and so forth. I think it's I think it's very interesting. And so before we leave uh, you, what do you think a myth is about your job? About being a professor yes. mean, at Harvard Business School? I think one, perhaps one of the most widespread myths is that um, most of our time is in teaching. I'm right. Actually, most of the time is in research. Being at an institution such as Harvard University, a lot of our time is actually spending as researchers. And that's why sometimes I get I get the question, how does it feel to have the summer off? Yeah. <laughs> that is not how the job is actually structured. During the summer is actually the time that you end up doing a lot of your research. So, so it's so funny and it's almost... By the way, I wish I had my summer off. Yeah, yeah, that would yeah. be very nice. <laughs> Maybe sometime in the future. Yeah. Yes. So let's go over. You have uh, just released, you have worked in an area for a long time, but you've just released a new book, which is called P Purpose and Profit. Can you tell us first what inspired you to write this book? And the title is important for me because it's Purpose and Profit. The reason why this end is because one of the things that we're witnessing is that almost a polarization yeah. where people tend to think about those things in isolation. So for example, traditional thinking would say, actually just pursue profit independent of the ways that you're pursuing it and all of those other things, yeah. how you're thinking about employee well-being, how you're thinking about customer relations, how you're thinking about customer impacts, how you're thinking about the impact on the environment and so forth. Those are just pure externality, don't worry about it. Another way of thinking is that all those are things are extremely important and you should pay so much attention of it and in some sense like deprioritize profit. But the reality is somewhere in the middle and I give this example in the book as well where I say actually when you ask people why people go into business everybody will say just for profit. But then when you ask people, why did you go mm. into business? Why did you start a company? Why did mm. you build a team and so forth? The usual response is, I saw an opportunity. Mm. I thought it would be really impactful to create this product that would enable the customers to do something better. Would I would make this product more affordable. I would make a higher quality mm. product. I would like to work with my friends and as a result we start the company together. I'm passionate about creating jobs. So when you actually go back to the genesis of most businesses is the idea of having a specific purpose, which can be different for you and I. Yeah. And actually profit being the fuel that allows you to reach your destination, which is purpose. 
So those ideas are actually interconnected. And in some sense, if you get the balance off, you can potentially destroy both of them. Yeah. So actually thinking about that both purpose is important and as a result, sustainability mm -hmm. issues and the impact that you're having on the various stakeholders and so forth. But also, let's not forget, profit is very important because profit allows you to scale your products and services and have mm -hmm. real impact. So that's uh, that was the genesis for me of the book. And then I asked myself, how can I respond mm. to so many young entrepreneurs, mm. young managers, but also mid-level managers in an organization? Mm. They're saying, I hear increasingly about sustainability, ESG, mm. and so forth. What can I do about it? Not at the 40,000 foot about how we can change it, right. but what can I do about it? So the book is a lot about how the, the relationship between purpose and profit are dynamic in nature and mm -hmm. it's changing over time as technology is changing, as the workforce is changing and so forth. But also about what can I as an individual do? You can check out more hints and tips in the blog post covering this podcast episode of Exploring Leaders at the Degotian blog, which you can find at degotian.com. And we're sitting here, and this week is actually Climate Week. Yes. And I can listen a lot to many of my colleagues, and you and I talked earlier about the challenge with risk and how that might stifle people. And you actually have a framework in your book where you talk about opportunities. Can yes. you share a fair bit about that framework and how you're thinking about it? And this discussion is fascinating to me because actually when you look at many of the environmental, social governance issues and the associated impacts that organizations are having, the primary framework of thinking is one of risk. Yeah. Basically, how can we make sure that all of those risks, we don't get caught in them and as a result, we don't destroy value. And of course, risk is very important. That's why we have enterprise risk management. That way we are developing our frameworks and our ability to protect value for organizations. And as a result, also to minimize negative impacts. But I think something that gets lost mm. many times is that all of those challenges that we're facing as a society mm. require innovation right. from a response and an adaptation perspective. Mm they require somebody to create the innovation mm. that is needed in order for us to improve the state of the world. For example, if we really want to, and we're serious about decarbonizing the world, we need a lot of batteries. We need a lot of renewable energy and so forth. So all of that innovation needs to come from organizations. And the same thing, if we actually want to improve the, the health and well-being of a lot of organizations. We actually need to develop a lot of innovation in terms of diagnostics, in terms of a healthier way of living for people, either from a food perspective mm -hmm. or from a built environment and real estate mm -hmm. perspective and so forth. So I think sometimes that gets lost in mm -hmm. this discussion mm -hmm. where people get really hung up in terms of saying, how can I make sure that I'm not associated with anything negative that is going on? And they forget that actually there is a tremendous amount of innovation that needs to be delivered by companies around the world in order for us to improve the world. And of course, governments have also a big role to play 
setting the appropriate rules of the game in terms of incentives in order to make some of those innovations and solutions also commercially attractive and scalable. And you had several examples in, the, in that framework. Can you give some of the examples yes. that you share? One of the things that I do in the book as well is I describe what I call the six archetypes of value creation. And for me, that is an important chapter because sometimes we tend to describe some of those opportunities for value creation at a very generic level. There is value to be created. There is value to not be... But the question is how much and what is the associated risk that comes with that from an implementation perspective. There are things that are actually much harder to do and there are things that are much easier to do. So one of the things that I do in the book is I create this opportunity and risk framework. And then I say, actually, some of the easiest things to do have to do with what I call a disclosure strategy. Meaning that sometimes organizations do things, but they are not getting credit for what they're doing and actually having a disclosure strategy that has allows for the marketplace to understand how you're building competitive advantages and how you are mitigating risk can actually increase the value of the organization. Mm -hmm. And I say that is the lowest opportunity, but also the lowest implementation risk. It's much easier to do. Then it's something that is much more broadly applicable to many organizations, which has to do with efficiency. Yeah. One of the, I would say, most easiest implementation from an implementation perspective things for organizations to do is to raise productivity for example through better employee practices mm -hmm. reducing accidents and safety rates mm -hmm. and so forth. and uh, another one is to reduce energy for example that is mm -hmm. used in manufacturing processes or the production mm -hmm. of waste or water that is going on so efficiency is another perspective and then we're moving progressively up taking higher implementation risk, but also increasing opportunity. So that's where we're observing, for example, that there are big trends that are changing the competitiveness of some products. For example, we see in terms of circularity and creating a circular economy. And we see, for example, a shift sometimes from plastic to aluminum mm. to the extent that this can be recycled mm. because aluminum is much, much easier to recycle mm. and we see that in beverages for example mm. and that is giving tailwinds for product innovation in this space and for sales in the space and as we're moving progressively then we're also observing just completely what I call pure play companies mm. that are disrupting legacy companies and creating a new business model and a new marketplace. Mm. One of the examples that I give is Warby Parker. For example, glasses for when you're having eyesight problems have traditionally been quite expensive actually. Expensive. <laughs> and they're creating a business model for much more affordable glasses that improve people's eyesight and at the same time actually financing, uh, giving glasses to the developing world mm -hmm. for people that they cannot afford. So when you buy one, they give one. And then we're, of course, we're observing again, even further higher up to the model of trans of business transformation, right. a huge opportunity for value creation, but also the very high implementation risk mm -hmm. because business transformation is actually really difficult mm -hmm. to pursue. So establish legacy companies that are trying to transform. For example, you're observing that in the transportation sector right. with many companies trying to go from 
internal combustion engines to electromobility and transportation as a service and mm. sharing economy and so forth. So those are transformations or in the energy sector trying to pivot and actually develop lower carbon revenue sources. Those transformations are very challenging and they need actually very strong governance. But at the same time, an opportunity for value creation can be very significant. So if we actually observe systematically what those six archetypes are, then we can actually think about it. What are the levers that mm. one could pull? Mm. But also importantly, what is the role of strong governance mm. in implementing them either from an, a disclosure perspective, mm. an efficiency perspective, a creation of new markets mm. and new models perspective, or a transformation perspective. I think it's very interesting and it's also in some ways very challenging, especially for the boards. Yes. <laughs> because one of the things that boards are tasked to do is to actually approve the strategy and whether they're taking part of developing the strategy or approving it. Um, and there's not even a joint definition of what strategy is on the back of that. But you also talk a bit about how to think about strategy yes. in relation to this. Can you share a bit more on that? So I think an important element around that is to go back to some of the fundamental work around strategy and make a distinction between strategy and operational effectiveness. What early on my colleague Mike Porter actually advocated for and understand that strategy is about your unique competitive positioning, mm. is about what makes you different. Mm. While operational effectiveness is how you can adopt best-in-class practices mm. to be as effective and efficient mm. as possible. And actually, if we start thinking about strategy in this space as your unique competitive positioning and about what makes you different, then that leads us naturally to the conclusion that sustainability efforts inside mm. an organization, either on the social side or on the environmental side, cannot be something that is being done in the periphery right. of the organization by a few people. And the rest of the organization mm. actually tries to say, that is your job, just yeah. tell us what to do. That is really not a strategy. That at its best is a program that you're having inside the company. So the question becomes one of, diffusion mm. of those issues inside the organization and really decentralization of the decision making when it comes to all of those environmental, social and governance issues. Well, I think that is a very important component because we observe many times mm. that not happening mm. and organizations staying at this centralized yeah. way yeah. of decision making that it is actually really hard to get to the innovation mm. stage. That's one of the things that we have right. found. By centralizing, in general, organizations are very good at getting to the efficiency yeah. perspective, but not necessarily to the innovation and growth right. perspective. And it's very hard to be on just one side. It's yes. actually, in the long run, yes. impossible. Yes. To get even more value out of the podcast series Exploring Leaders, you can find everything from research reports to advice and courses at the Degotian website, which you can find at Degotian.com. So I want to charge you because you have another responsibility, or you have several responsibilities, but one of them is around uh, the impact accounting. Yes. Uh, and we're following some of the Scandinavian companies are really starting to do that now, and I find it super interesting, but also very hard. Sorry. 
And if you think about impact, accounting, and all of the discussions going on with all of these rating institutes, can you share a bit why do you think impact accounting will have to be much more adopted by companies and, and yes. anything you think they should do? So to understand that, we need to take a step back and understand almost the evolution of the space. So what has happened is when it comes to a company's sustainability effort, initially there was no data. Mm -hmm. So if you were trying to compare two companies, you would just try to grab any data that you could in order to make that evaluation. And that's why I would say from a data collection perspective, you would observe rating companies trying to say, what are the policies that you have? What are the targets that you have? What are the management systems that you have? What are the strategies that you have? And then they will try to collect as much data as well on some outcomes that you were mm -hmm. achieving. But most of the data would be what I call input data, meaning yeah. a lot about intentions and effort. And of course, some of that is useful because sometimes intentions translate to outcomes, yeah. but sometimes they do not. Me and you, many mm. times, every probably beginning of the year we're <laughs> intending, we're having New Year's resolutions and we intend to do several things and then a few months later we, we haven't yeah. achieved them. So there's a human instinct to that, but of course there is a strong incentive piece mm. to that as mm. well which has to do with a lot of organizations are incentivized to signal their intentions, right. but they don't necessarily follow through mm. to translate those mm. outcomes. And as the field has grown, people are trying to create and collect better data. And stock exchanges have helped a lot with that. They have tried both to educate companies mm. about what good disclosure might be, and they have also, governments have also mm. helped with that, trying to create regulatory structures mm. and disclosure regulations and so forth. But we're still in a space where people don't really have a general applicable, I would say, standard on how to evaluate that information. Right. And that creates several challenges. The first one is that the push for disclosure and transparency has actually caught many companies mm. off guard and the natural instinct in those companies is to treat this whole domain as a reporting exercise yeah. rather than as a strategy exercise and in general when you actually allow reporting to drive your strategy is a recipe for not very good outcomes yeah. you need to start with your strategy and that to drive your communication efforts and your reporting the other element that is a little bit confusing to people is that although we're getting more and more information, it, that doesn't mean that people know what to do with that information or know how to interpret that information. That's why in one of our research papers, we have found that with increases in disclosure, we find more rating disagreement yeah. across the different rating agencies. So the more rating agencies disagree, which is a little bit counterintuitive, yeah. which, because you would say, with more disclosure, I would expect people to agree more. Yeah. Actually, in this space, people disagree more. Why? Because over time, you're having more data points to disagree on. Mm -hmm. And also, companies, as they're improving disclosure, they start disclosing more outcomes rather than inputs. Mm -hmm. And outcomes is harder to actually agree on. Mm -hmm. It's more likely that we'll agree on that you have mm -hmm. a target and that might be a mm. good thing or that you have a policy mm. but actually when we're observing a metric and it's 
0 0.02 loss time injury rate. Yeah. Is this good? Is this bad? That depends on my benchmark, how I interpret it and so forth. So that is also another challenge that we're facing. Taking a step back from that whole conundrum, mm. I think it's really important that we actually define outcomes mm. that are important and we don't only base our decisions on intentions and efforts, right. but we actually define outcomes. And then we ask the question about how valuable those outcomes mm. are. So the accounting system works mm. not because we're saying 10 chairs went out of the yeah. factory and 15 came and then and we have three floors of a building, yeah. but we have a common measurement base. Right. We recognize that this is not perfect mm. because different things have different measurement bases yeah. and as a result sometimes we have historical costs, sometimes mm. we have fair value mm. measurements mm. and so forth. But over time we have accepted this imperfectness because we think that having an account system is really important. Mm. So I think from that perspective, it's really important that we measure the outcomes mm. that we're intending mm. on people and the environment. Mm. But at the same time, we have some type of valuation yes. mechanism yeah. in order for us to create effectively, as we're having a balance sheet or an income statement, yeah. we also have an impact balance sheet and an income, yeah. impact income statement. Yeah. And even try to merge them uh, so that they yes. appear in the same... Yes. Uh, and that function. is also very important for boards, I think, yes. and from a governance perspective. As more and more management mm. is allocating more resources mm. towards those efforts, mm. how do you know, as a board member, that we're actually achieving the outcomes, that the resources exactly. are allocated in a productive way? Mm. So you need to have an accountability mechanism mm. for an organization to say, are we achieving the outcomes are we effective in achieving the outcomes? Right. Are we achieving the right outcomes? I think that is a very important governance right. discussion. So I look forward to follow, because I think for me, from the outside, this entire area is, is still very embryotic. Yes. But I really look forward to yes. having more information out of that area. Let's go over to the leaders and boards. and. Uh, I also find this very fascinating because you're struggling with the same things where you also sit on yes. boards. Firstly, why do you think that uh, boards are struggling so much with this area? There's been a lot of changes going on. We have the digitalization and there's been a lot of things. Why are they struggling more with this area? And what things do you see that boards can particularly try to focus and put in place? I think there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, change is always difficult. Yeah. Whenever you are having something that is a new field, a new fen relatively new phenomenon and so forth, I think it just takes time to yeah. build capacity and capabilities and I would say a framework of thinking about it yes. inside an organization. So I think there is a natural human component to that. I think there is a structural component to that, which is especially for public companies, the burdens of compliance. Mm. There's just so much time that is spent on that within boards that actually that leaves less time for strategy mm. related mm. discussions. And I think that is almost a capacity constraints that many right. boards are facing. But I would say fundamentally for boards that might be in the earlier stages of actually thinking about those things, or maybe they are in more advanced stages, but they want to elevate mm -hmm. right the mm -hmm. importance of that i think one element at least is how you can actually find 
the balance between depth and breadth in this discussion right. because actually sustainability issues can be so many of them it can actually get overwhelming so how do you actually balance mm. of saying there are really three to four mm. issues that mm. really matter for these organizations and that we can really make a difference mm. and while there are a hundred different things how can we actually really make sure that we are concentrating on the right ones and that we can go mm. deep in those ones mm. and we develop our capabilities mm. we are actually developing our measurement capabilities right. we are actually making sure that we are aligning incentives inside the organization mm. we make sure that we have the right people and the mm. right culture mm. to drive performance in those things mm. so i think from that perspective for the board mm. is a question about depth mm. and breadth when it comes to those issues and it's interesting because that also takes a bit of courage yes. courage to actually choose Yes. some of those areas. And that's why strategy is also about what you don't do. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, you have uh, been in this field and you are meeting a lot of companies and a lot of leaders. So, is there a particular company or a leader you think we should keep our eye on and that we can have learned from? There are just so many, actually, leaders and, and some of them are individuals and stories of mm. individuals that I mentioned in the book. Mm. So maybe I will give that as a hint yes. to go towards the yeah. book. It's, there is a, a very inspiring to me story that is about Eric Onsmundsen, the former CEO of a large waste management company. And there are actually stories uh, ranging from Satyam Nadella, the mm. CEO of Microsoft, and how he has led with purpose, mm. really the transformation of the organization and infusing purpose inside the organization to the work that Ilan Kadri is doing at Solvay and so forth. And all of them, actually, what is fascinating about the book is that actually this is not easy. No. It has lots of challenges and it requires both a cultural and a governance transformation right. as leaders are going through the journey it's almost a battle between successes and failures yeah. and you succeed and you fail and that's why in the book i also mentioned several failures right of where leaders have tried to mm. actually lead on a specific transformation mm. product development operational mm. change and so forth and that failed mm. because of misaligned incentives, because mm. the culture wasn't there, because you couldn't mm. just get an employee mm. buy-in, because you just couldn't align incentives with your investors. So there are actually many reasons. And I think we can actually learn a lot from those failures as well. And I think you're right. Sometimes we're too focused on just looking at the very few light holes. But if we also look at Definitely. the challenges, that Definitely. will help. So do you have a practical recommendation i know this is hard but it can be anything a practical recommendation for boards i'm definitely not a fan of the five steps to success that okay. you often <laughs> that you often read i don't think anything like that exists but i would say my practical recommendation is asking are we concentrating on the right things do we have the right people and the capacity inside the organization mm -hmm. to actually implement mm. the strategy mm. that we're coming up with and do they have the incentives right to actually deliver on those programs and sometimes you find that the answer to some of those questions is no yeah yeah 
And that is extremely important. In that, in the transformation side, when right. we were talking before about archetypes, for example, in the transformation side of those things, then you say, we're concentrating on the right things, we have hired, we have actually yeah. the right people, but they have incentives to keep investing and selling the legacy products and under investing in where we want to go. So I think asking some of those questions and then saying, if the answer is no, how should we think about it? And how can we increase the focus of the organization? And I think in general, the focus of the organization can be increased in two ways. The first one is basically developing the metrics, the right metrics and focusing the discussion on them. So it sends the message throughout the organization or incentives. Right? Yeah. and changing yeah. incentives yeah. inside the organization. Yeah. And it's, incentives has a dual sword thing, I think, and that is that if we're focusing too much on incentives, we get the wrong yes. people. We yes. get the people who are still just after yes. being incented rather than the passionate, purpose-filled people. Yes. We have talked about your book and, and we've also learned a bit about you. So if people want to connect with you or if they want to read the book, what should they do? Reading the book is uh, is relatively easy. It is widely available. And by the way, for anybody that reads the book and finds the ideas engaging or helpful to mm. do what they are doing, I always appreciate a note about what they found useful. And sometimes people tell me in chapter five, yeah. that section was to me, yeah. it really resonated right. with because I had this experience. Now yeah. it gives me a structural way of thinking about yeah. it. And of course, the book cannot give you the answers mm. on, on mm. so many things, mm. but actually it gives you a way of thinking, a framework right. of thinking about some mm. of those problems. This is something that I always say in the classroom as well. Mm. We're having case discussions here mm. of real business cases, mm. and then we're developing a way of thinking. Mm. And sometimes students get frustrated because they're like, but what is the answer? And I say, sometimes there is no answer, yeah, yeah. but there is a structural way of thinking mm. about the risks and the opportunities, yes. the cost and the benefits. And right. it's all about developing a way of mm. thinking about mm. some of those very complicated mm. problems mm. in a structured way. And I think that is actually something that I'm hoping that the book will achieve of thinking about those ideas as a balance and about how from a governance perspective, from a management perspective, we can start really thinking about mm. the strategic relevance mm. of those issues and about how organizations can make a difference. Thank you so much. I think it's super interesting to to uh, review and go through. And I really can recommend people to read your book because Thank it you. has a lot of thinking frameworks that I think we're lacking at this stage when it, we're in quite immature stages. So I'd like to end up with a bit of an odd question. Sure. And that is, if you were an art form, what would you be and why? Wow, that is uh, that is a question that I haven't thought about, but probably I would be music. Yes, and I, why? I think I would be music because when I think about some of the other art forms, much like a painting or something, mm-hmm. they tend to be quite constant, which is mm-hmm. very important. But um, personally, that I like to think of much more flowing as a human being and i like to learn a lot i like to interact with people that know more than me 
on specific fields and I think developing the ability to interact with people that are experts and masters of their craft in a specific thing and you almost become like a student and you actually can assimilate and can adjust the information that you're learning is really important and I view music as a almost like this constant flow of mastery and craft that is being infused from the experiences of many different people. So thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been really interesting and looking forward to continue to collaborate. Thank Thank you you so much for having me. It has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Exploring Leaders, a podcast produced by Degotion with the ambition to inspire insightful leadership in the digital age. If you found this episode interesting, join the momentum to amplify the voices of trailblazing leaders by sharing it with others for inspiration. For any questions or recommendations on other inspiring leaders you like to listen to, contact us via our website, degotion.com, or via social media as LinkedIn or Twitter.